Well, I'm not looking for a show of hands, but I do want to ask a question that you can answer privately in your own minds, okay? How many of you have catast- how many of you have catastrophized? Maybe I should define it. We might catastrophize when an action or event or situation occurs, and we jump to the worst possible conclusion, despite the fact that we have very little information or lack any type of objective reason to despair. Here are a couple of examples. One would be this. Let's say a student fails an exam. Kids, you in, you in school, let's say you fail a test. You would catastrophize if you, having failed the test, jumped to the conclusion that you're going to flunk out of school and that you're never going to be a success in life. Now, here's another example. Let's say, um, parents, let's say one of your children secretly takes a cookie from the cookie jar. You would catastrophize by thinking that because they took the cookie out of the cookie jar, they're going, it's going to lead them to a life of criminal activity and spend their life behind bars. Now, in, in these instances, of course, the thinking process is unhealthy. Right? It's unhealthy because we begin, what, what happens is we begin to ruminate. Uh, we ruminate on an action or an event or a situation. And that ruminating leads to magnifying that action, event, or situation, or the outcome of that action, event, or situation. And that, of course, um, leads us to think that it's a catastrophe, and that leads us to despair. But overcoming it, for those of you that maybe struggle with that a little bit, Overcoming it is really a simple process. First, we've got to, you've got to understand that you do it. Um, and then once you understand that you do it, then you need to allow yourself or make yourself think through all of the other possibilities rather than those that are most negative. And then distinguish between that which is harmful, unpleasant, and distressing with those, that, those things that are extremely harmful and unpleasant and distressing, and then those things that are catastrophic. Now, why do I begin there? How do we get there to Genesis chapter 4? Well, I begin there because tonight I think we're going to see that the Westminster divines were not catastrophizing when they wrote the following in our Confession of Faith. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This, their sin, God was pleased, according to His wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to His own glory. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, 
And the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. The fall was catastrophic. The fall was catastrophic not only for Adam and Eve, but for all mankind. And we're going to see tonight the immediate and catastrophic effect of their sin through the story of Cain and Abel. But thankfully, I'm going to just tell you up front, thankfully we're not going to leave here tonight in despair because there is hope. There is hope. Our outline is found in the normal place in the back of your bulletin. We're going to look at six things tonight. I want you to notice the proclamation of thanks, the presentation of offerings, the provision of grace, the pronouncement of judgment, the progress of culture, and the promise of hope. I didn't know it was going to be a P night. If you were in Sunday school, every list that Aaron gave you began with a P, and so does mine, so we'll, we'll choose another letter next week. Um, children, you will find your words, they all do not begin with the letter P uh, in their normal place as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, in these moments, please give us humble and contrite spirits. Open our ears and our eyes and enlighten our hearts. Awaken our attention and keep us from all worldly wisdom. Attend with power the truth preached and may your people be convicted, edified, refreshed, and comforted. Grant me grace. Fill me with your spirit and use me as you see fit this evening. And I ask these things for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen. Well, just a quick recap. You'll remember at the end of chapter 3, Moses told us that Adam and Eve had been driven out of the garden and that uh, their removal was both necessary and gracious. It was necessary because had they eaten of the tree of life in that state which they found themselves in, um, well, no, it, it, was, it was necessary because they had forfeited life, okay? They had forfeited eternal life, which was fellowship with God. It was gracious because had they eaten of the tree of life in that condition, separated from God, they would have spent eternity separated from Him. They would have remained alienated. And to make sure that it was impossible for them to re-enter, God set two angels at the east entrance of the garden to make sure that if there was any attempt to, to re-enter, they would be opposed. And that message, if you remember, was that union and communion with God was only possible on God's terms. Man cannot bring it about on his own. He must do it for us. Now, here in chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 4, we see Adam and Eve beginning their life in exile east of Eden. And that life begins with the conception and birth of a boy. And they named the boy Cain. And that name reflected Eve's gratitude and proclaimed her thanks to the Lord because she believed and knew that this son was a gift from him. She was 
obviously aware of and grateful for the grace of God that He had exhibited to her and to Adam. The Lord had created man, but now He was blessing her, and despite her sin, He was enabling her to create another man with His divine help. It was a name also that communicated faith in the promise that the Lord had made to them back in Genesis uh, 3.15. Even though, we need to know, even though this seed that she was thanking the Lord for um, wasn't necessarily the seed she was hoping for. But Cain was not only the, or was not only, the only son she bore. She also bore another son, and she named him Abel. And interestingly, Moses doesn't share anything at all about their childhood. We would have loved to just kind of see how they grew up. But there's nothing there. All that we're told is their occupations. Cain's a farmer, and Abel is a shepherd. And Moses says in the course of time when they had been blessed with fruit of their labor, they had been working long enough that they were uh, bringing forth fruit from what they, they had been uh, involved in, um, Moses says that they presented offerings to the Lord. And what happens next has been a point of discussion and even debate for a very long time. At the end of verse 4 it says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offspring, but for Cain and his offspring he had no regard. And the question and the debate revolves around the question, why? Why did the Lord choose to regard Abel and his offering and disregard Cain and his offering? And the problem is that the text, in the text, Moses doesn't say explicitly what the problem was. Of course, we know that, and it's obvious that the Lord can and does, in fact, determine or judge some offerings and some worship to, to be acceptable and some to be unacceptable. And we, of course, know that it is the Lord's prerogative to judge something or to accept an offering or reject an offering or to accept worship or to reject worship. He can do as He sees fit. But the question that we have, we, we, we ask why because we want to know, what is the standard? What is the standard that by which he was making this judgment, because we also know that the Lord is not capricious or arbitrary. Well, some have speculated, of course, that Abel's offering was accepted because it involved blood, but because we've been through the book of Leviticus, we know that the Lord, in the, in the sacrifices that the Lord instituted, that he uh, found grain offerings to be as acceptable as blood offerings. So it had to be something other than that or more than that. And we need to look at the text, as Aaron reminded us tonight, you know, we were going to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we need to look at the text and determine what that was and what we find is interesting. Again, not explicit, but implicit. Notice what Cain is described as having brought. Cain brought fruit of the ground. He didn't, brought, he didn't bring first fruit or fruit from the first portion of the harvest. Abel 
is described as having brought not only from the firstborn of the flock, but of their fat portions, or what was considered the best portion. One commentator put it this way, Abel went out of his way to please God, and Cain simply discharged a duty. We think, why? What, what brought that about? What, what was behind what they offered? And the author of Hebrews, in chapter 11, verse 4, tells us, he put it this way, he says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, by commending him, by accepting his gifts. Abel brought his offering in faith. And because he came in faith and he offered his offering in faith, he was commended as righteous. Cain, on the other hand, according to 1 John 3, verse 12, did not come in faith and was not commended as righteous. Listen to the Apostle John. He said, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Beloved, the difference, what made the difference, or the issue at hand was one of the heart. Their heart reflect, was reflected in their offerings. That's why Moses mentioned the man before he mentions the offering, right? He, he regarded Abel and Abel's offering. He disregarded Cain and disregarded Cain's offering. But the offering wasn't the only thing, it wasn't the only sign of Cain's heart issue. Notice how Cain responds to what the Lord had said. Look at verse 5, he says, so Cain was angry and his face fell. Cain responded in anger rather than humility. His anger was a symptom of his evil disposition. And brothers and sisters, I just said that when he heard the Lord speak, we really don't know how God communicated his acceptance and rejection of the two brothers and their offsprings. We don't know if they heard him speak audibly or if he spoke inwardly by the Spirit. But what we do know is that one came humbly trusting in the Lord and his offering was accepted and he was accepted. And the one who came pridefully trusting in himself was disregarded. The one who came in faith was accepted, the one who came in unbelief was not. We, we would do well. We would do well to examine our own hearts as we come and gather to worship. We would do well to, to consider and to examine ourselves and our offerings that we bring before the Lord. We can ask the question, do we come in the way of Abel, in faith, or do we come in the way of Cain, in the way of unbelief? Do we come trusting in the Lord, or do we come trusting in ourselves? Well, Cain's anger is just the beginning of the downward spiral. In the words of Alan Ross, whereas Eve had to be talked into her sin by the serpent, it appears that Cain would not be talked out of his intended sin even by the Lord himself. The hardness of Cain's heart was, 
made evident not only by his anger, but by his rejection of God's provision of grace. And that grace took the form of a question and in the form of a warning, both of which were intended to bring Cain to a point of repentance. He says, the Lord says, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The look on Cain's face gave him away. The Lord knew immediately how he was feeling, and the Lord confronted him immediately. Why are you angry? Cain, why? Why are you feeling this way? Why are you acting that way? Do you think I've been unjust? Do you think you deserve better? Are you jealous of your brother? Do you resent your brother? Tell me, what is it? Because if you don't deal with what's going on, it's going to eat you alive. If you don't deal with this anger, it's going to leave you vulnerable and exposed to an even greater danger. The sin you're harboring is your enemy, not me. It's waiting to devour you. I'm waiting to forgive. If you don't kill it, It'll kill you. Repent. Be forgiven. And restored. But verse 8 tells us that Cain ignored the warning. Ignored the question and ignored the warning. He allows the anger and the resentment to fester to the point of of turning a sinful thought. The sinful thought escalates. And becomes a sinful deed of premeditated murder of his own little brother. The first physical death experienced due to Adam and Eve's fateful choice in the garden was the murder of their own son at the hands of their other son. But again, just like he did with Adam and Eve, just like he did with Cain's parents, the Lord comes looking for him. He comes once again seeking to call a sinner to repentance. But notice, he doesn't ask, Cain, where are you? Remember he said, Adam, where are you? But he doesn't ask, Cain, where are you? Like he did Adam. He asked, Cain, where's your brother? And that's because Cain, unlike his parents, wasn't hiding. He has no guilt or shame, unlike his parents. And he he doesn't play games with his response. It's an audacious response. He just flat out lies. And then he rejects any notion that he had any responsibility whatsoever to care for and protect his little brother. In other words, he had no love for God. He had no love for his neighbor including his brother.
Brothers and sisters, I, I must ask you this evening, are you angry? Are you resentful? Are you bitter? Are you harboring ill will against a neighbor or a brother? Or against the Lord? Are you in entertaining thought, uh, uh, sinful thoughts and desires of any kind? If you don't deal with them and repent of them, they will leave you vulnerable and exposed to an even, even greater danger. To hold on to your sin is to treasure it, is to nurture it, and to preserve it, and it will eventually devour you. If you don't kill it, it'll kill you. And by the way, those are John Owen's words. I just put it there because didn't fit the first time around. If you don't kill it, it'll kill you. Don't wait. Confess and repent of your sin and rest in the truth that in the words of the Apostle John, if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Again, don't wait. Well, as a result of Cain's hardness of heart, the Lord pronounces judgment. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In the words of Alan Ross, Abel's blood testified against Cain by crying out to God. In the words of another commentator, he says it's no empty sentence that the blood of the victim cries out. There is someone to whom it cries out. Cain cannot hide his deed. And finally, in the words of George Wenham, he said, Here, Abel's blood is pictured as crying to God for vengeance. And he says in, in Scripture, that word cry is the desperate cry of men without food, expecting to die or oppressed by their enemies. It's the scream for help of a woman being raped. It is the plea to God of the victims of injustice. But then he says this, God does hear His people's desperate cries for help. And not only does God hear, He responds he says, Cain, now you are cursed from the ground. You're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your bro brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Unlike his father and mother, but like the serpent, Cain himself is cursed. He had irrigated the ground that he had been working all of his life with the blood of his brother. And the ground was now going to retaliate. The difficulty and sorrow that had been a part of his work of, right, remember uh, the curse back in chapter 3 and his difficulty and sorrow that had been part of his work of tilling and sowing and removing the thorns and thistles and then harvesting 
was going to be the least of his worries. Because the ground was not going to produce for him anymore. And not only was it going to cease to produce, by the way, no matter how hard he worked, he was also banished. And he had to flee as a wandering fugitive further to the east into misery, away from his family, and even worse, away from the Lord. Beloved, we, we learn in chapter 3, and it's reiterated here in chapter 4, that being in fellowship with God and rebelling against Him are mutually exclusive. And what I mean by that is this, sin leads to banishment out of the presence of the Lord. It is impossible to be and live in fellowship and in the presence of the Lord and living in a state of perpetual and unrepentant sin. So every, everybody has to make a choice. We can choose fellowship and life with the Lord, or we can choose banishment from the Lord. We can choose life or death. We can do both simultaneously. Now the hope, of course, would be that the reality of the judgment would soften Cain's heart. Right? That's the goal. The goal is to move him to a place of remorse and repentance because right, he should have lost his life on the spot. And we'll learn that in Genesis 9. But unfortunately, his heart only grew harder. Verse 13 says, he cries out, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. There is absolutely no mention of Abel there at all. It's all about him. He expressed absolutely no sorrow for what he had done. The only thing that was grieving Cain was the consequences of his actions. He saw only harshness rather than mercy. Ligon Duncan put it very well when he said, Isn't this a contrast between a hardened heart and a repentant heart? The hardened heart says, Lord, your sentence is unfair. The repentant heart says, Lord, your mercy is undeserved. Whenever we hear someone declaring that the Lord's sentence is too harsh, we may be sure that we are listening to an unrepentant heart because a repentant heart knows that if we were to receive what we deserve, we would all be under the condemnation of God. Beloved, that ought to reverberate in our ears. Children, let me ask you, how do you respond to the discipline of your parents? Do you complain that your parents are being too harsh or it's not fair? Or do you respond humbly by admitting that you deserve much more for your sin and that their discipline is good for you? And adults, what about you? How do you respond to the discipline of the Lord? Do you complain that your heavenly Father is being too harsh and not being fair? 
Or do you respond humbly by admitting you deserve much more for your sin and that His discipline is good for you? Which do you reflect most often? A hard heart or a repentant heart? Well, this back and forth between grace and rejection of grace continues in verses 15 to 25. The Lord responds to Cain, his, Cain's unrepentant plea by placing some kind, we don't know what kind, some kind of mark on him, and it protects him. That mark protects him from suffering in the same way he caused his own brother to suffer. But Cain turns right around and defies the Lord immediately, and he does so by settling in, not wandering in the land of Nod. And he doesn't just settle, he builds a city. I'm not wandering. I'm putting down roots. But the Lord again responds graciously. He responds graciously by allowing culture to progress. Right? The population grows. Tents were invented. Livestock management increased. The fine arts, particularly music, was established. Forging and metalworking begins. In other words, technology advances. More and more they applied their knowledge for practical purposes in a reproducible way. And yet, despite all of that technological ad- advance and cultural progress, those within the city spiritually digressed. And Cain's great-great-great-grandson Lamech was the first, or was the poster child of that digression because he was the first polygamist. He shows his disdain for marriage by taking two wives, and then he exhibits disdain for life by, by killing one, maybe two people. And he He doesn't just lack remorse. He exults in his crime. Bragging to his wives of what he had done. Pridefully telling him that there wasn't anyone, anything anyone could do about it. Derek Kidner puts it this way, Lamech's taunt song reveals the swift progress of sin. Where Cain had succumbed to it, Lamech exults in it. Where Cain had sought protection, Lamech looks around for provocation. Cain's family is a microcosm. Its pattern of technical prowess and moral failure is that of humanity. And brothers and sisters, of course, what was true then is, is true now. I mean, advances in, in the rebellion toward God and, and advances in the defiance of His law seems to be directly proportionate to advances in culture and civilization. Cultural progress and technological advancement, intellectual enlightenment, political reform, educational modification, economic stabilization... Social reconstruction, historical revision. None of it results in moral improvement. 
Actually, it may be just the opposite. Moral improvement is only produced through spiritual reformation that begins with heart transformation. There's no other way. Again, in the words of Ligon Duncan, there is a balance. Balance of appreciation for human creativity as a divine gift and a recognition that technique and technology are no replacement for the life of God and the soul of man and the morality which flows from that. And that leads us to our last point. The promise of hope. The promise of hope. Look at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So here's what's happened. Back in verses 4 and 5, God put a wedge between the seed of the serpent, Cain, and the seed of the woman, Abel. And for a moment, the seed of the serpent gained an advantage. He had bruised the seed of the woman's head. But remember, back in chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord had promised victory to the seed of the woman. And to do that, he blessed Eve with another son, who he named Seth. And through Seth's line, verse 26 says that the people began to call on the name of the Lord. In other words, we see for the first time people beginning to assemble in corporate gatherings to worship. It's a stark contrast between that and Cain's family, is it not? And this is fantastic news because in the midst of human or humanity's depravity, there was hope. There would be a remnant being protected through whom God would be glorified and His promise fulfilled. But we need to notice something. We need to notice that the text doesn't say that everybody in Seth's line was righteous. And it also doesn't say that everybody in Cain's line was evil. Each line is definitely characterized by something, and what characterized them was vastly different. But unfortunately, we're going to see in a couple of weeks that those two lines are going to intermingle, and it's going to lead to another catastrophic result. Listen to chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And you say, Chris, I I thought you said there was hope. There is. Because the good news is in the midst of humanity's depravity, chapter 6 also says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah was not from the line of Cain. 
He was from the line of Seth. But the news gets even better than that. Because Seth is not the only notable one, or I'm sorry, Noah is not the only notable one from the line of Seth. If you remember from our study of Luke, Jesus was as well. And why is that important? Because Jesus was and is the seed of the woman who crushed the seed of the serpent, uh, crushed the head of the seed of the serpent and won victory over sin and death. Jesus was and is the one who reconciled us to God through offering himself upon the cross. He was, Jesus was and is the one who was banished for sin. Not his, but ours. The cross is a wonder. Because the cross is where mercy and justice meet. The penalty of sin, the penalty for sin was paid through His substitutionary atonement on our behalf. And His blood that was shed for us, according to Hebrews 12, 24, was unlike the blood of Abel that speaks of accusation and vengeance and judgment. The blood of Christ, the blood of Christ speaks of love and grace and atonement and forgiveness and healing and peace and restoration and reconciliation. And we could go on and on. Brothers and sisters, He is our hope. Let's call on His name together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You allow us and enable us to receive the Word with faith and love. May we lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. For Your glory and for our good, and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen.